From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The 2024 election is still a year away, but two of Colorado's most competitive congressional districts are already taking shape. We'll get insight into the strategies and issues that will define the state's newest district and the state's largest district. Then, America's next World Cup star might be Colorado's own... Sophia Smith. Every defense's biggest terror. Oh, she's done it again! Sophia Smith! We hear about her family's journey to this moment. She's kind of always been confident in her abilities to do something. She'll always take on her older sisters because she believes she can beat them. I sit down with Sophia Smith's parents as they prepare for the start of the World Cup this week. If you have a car you're ready to part with, have you thought about donating it to Colorado Public Radio? Car donations from listeners like you are a really important part of CPR's funding, and it's easy to do. Just fill out a form, schedule a pickup, and supply the title. Soon, your car will be on its way to help fund the fair, fact-based news reporting you count on. Get started at CPR.org support. And thanks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. 2024 may feel far off to us regular folks, but in the political world, it's already top of mind. And in that world, two Colorado congressional races are likely to loom large, not just here, but nationally. Joining me for an update on where they stand are our political reporters, Benta Berkland and Caitlin Kim. Hi, you two. Hi, thanks for having us. Let's start with the race for Congressional District 8. This is the state's newest district. It's based northeast of Denver, and it covers areas that have experienced a lot of growth over the past decade. Why is it so important, Lynn? Well, at least on paper, this is considered the state's most competitive district. It has a one-point advantage for Democrats, and it's the district with the largest Latino population. But if there is one seat that is flippable, um, it's this one. And it's important because control of the House of Representatives is at stake. Right now, Republicans hold a very slim majority, five seats. And if they want to keep it, or more more likely they want to build it and make it a larger majority, they need to be able to win seats like the 8th Congressional District. Now, conversely... Democrats want to regain the majority, and it means holding on to seats held by frontline Democrats like Representative Yadira Caraveo, the district's current congressperson. And if you remember, Chandra, in 2022, it was a close contest. You know, Caraveo won, but with less than 50 percent of the vote, thanks to a third party candidate. And there are many people who believe that if the libertarian candidate hadn't run and been a spoiler, Republican Barbara Kirkmeyer could have been elected. So because the House is on the line, control of the House is on the line, expect to see a lot of national money in this race, a lot of um, media interest in this race, as well as a lot of outside spending from different groups, outside groups. But we're talking about this today because not because who will be challenging Caraveo, but really because of who won't be. Right. Yeah, that's right. A a lot of Republicans were waiting to see if Caraveo's opponent in 2022, State Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer, would enter this race. And Kirkmeyer announced just last week that she won't. Instead, she said she wants to run for reelection to the state Senate and she wants to stay on the legislature's powerful joint budget committee. And her decision not to run has definitely opened the door for other hopefuls to officially enter the race. 
And have people been doing that? So far, Weld County Commissioner Scott James has officially announced his bid, and other names are being floated, including a first-year State House rep, Gabe Evans. And he's also from Weld County, and he told me he is seriously considering it, but he hasn't set a timeline on when he'd make a decision. Other possible candidates haven't said one way or another. I talked to a few Republican consultants. They said the biggest issue is making sure any GOP candidate can be a strong fundraiser and boost their name ID in the district because Democrats are going to spend a lot of money to try to hold on to the seat. Lynn, is it surprising that Republicans are just getting into the race now? Does that signal any trouble for the GOP? You know, not really. This is still the off year. Um, Colorado's congressional primary isn't until the end of June. That's, you know, 11 months away. But because, as Benta mentioned, um, this is going to be an expensive race. So unless a candidate is rich and can self-fund, Republican candidates need to fundraise, especially since the National Party of the National Republican Party isn't really going to get involved until someone wins the Republican primary. And frankly, every day there wasn't someone in the race, though, that was a day where Caraveo could build her fundraising lead. Colorado's Republican Party has really shifted its focus under its new chair, Dave Williams. We've talked before about how willing he is to call out fellow Republicans he doesn't think are properly adhering to the party line. Do you see him playing a role in this primary? Potentially, yes. Even though the Republican Party's bylaws require the state party chair to remain neutral in primaries, we've seen that the chair may not adhere to that. So he's already attacked Congressman Doug Lamborn in Colorado Springs, who will likely face a primary challenge. And just last week, before Barbara Kirkmeyer announced that she was not running for this 8th congressional district seat, she and the party chair got into a, a very public dispute on social media over an email he sent that was homophobic and about Pride Month. And there's also a deal struck between the Republican Party in Colorado and Libertarians. How might that factor into these races? Yeah, well, that was an unprecedented agreement. And Libertarians said in this agreement that they would not run candidates next cycle as long as Republicans nominate, quote, pro-liberty candidates. So how each side ultimately will define pro-liberty and what that will mean for some of these Republican primary races will be very interesting to follow. And we'll be keeping a watch on that. Mm. While all of this is going on, there is another congressional race I know you are also watching closely, and that's the third congressional district. Right. Uh, yeah, that race was actually even closer than the 8th district last time around. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, the Republican, won by less than 550 votes in a district that leans Republican. And in 2024, there could be a rematch in that race. Uh, Democrat Adam Frisch from Aspen is running again, and he currently faces a couple of primary opponents. Uh, Debbie Burnett, who ran in the primary last cycle as well, but didn't make it on the ballot, as well as a new candidate from Pueblo. Um uh, Lauren Boebert is also looking at a primary challenge from uh, Republican Russ Andrews of from Carbondale. What's the latest on that race? <laughs> well, the big news is that Adam Frisch outraced Lauren Boebert three to one in this last fundraising fundraising quarter. Look, Lauren Boebert is no slouch when it comes to fundraising. She raised over eight hundred thousand dollars in the last quarter, which is large uh, for the Colorado con- 
congressional delegation members, but that paled in comparison to the $2.6 million that Frisch raised in that same time period. Right now, he has almost a million dollars more cash on hand than Boebert. He's now outraced her two quarters in a row, and we'll have to see if that trend continues in the coming months. You know, there's a lot of time between now and November 2024. Um, the other candidates in this race haven't raised that much. Burnett, just over 28000 cash on hand, while Andrews has just over 15000 I know we're over a year away, but what do you think the main issues are going to be in those races? Vincent, so let's start with you and CD8. Well, like Lynn mentioned, it's a diverse district and it's fairly um, middle of the road when it comes to politics, evenly split. But I do think across the political spectrum, the economy, affordability, and just general quality of life issues are going to be the top priority. And the National Republican Congressional Committee and Americans for Prosperity, they're already attacking Caraveo on some of her votes in Congress. For instance, her opposition to the Republicans' energy bill and her recent no vote on the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act. And Lynn, what about CD3? Well, obviously, that race is going to be a referendum on Boebert. Um, you know, of the small group of hard right Republicans, this last election showed that she is actually one that's potentially beatable. And Democrats are sort of hanging on to that. You know, there's that saying that you're either a show horse in Congress or a workhorse. <laughs> She's garnered so much attention for her actions, you know, not her legislation. You know, trying to impeach President Biden, being one of the holdouts in the House Speaker's race, criticizing the debt ceiling uh, deal and then missing the vote. The big thing to watch will be, can she deliver and will she actually vote for legislation that gets signed by President Biden and brings money and legislative wins that actually help the third congressional district between now and next November? Um, and, and, you know, and actually not be what Frisch has described as one of those anger-tainment Congress members. So think issues like water, like getting the farm bill passed, getting money for infrastructure, striking that balance on the western slope between all the above energy policy as well as protecting public lands. So there'll be a lot of issues. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. So you have the 8th Congressional District where Democrats are defending a narrow victory and the 3rd where they're trying to reverse a narrow defeat. So how are Democrats preparing for next year? Democrats have had an incredible amount of success at the ballot box in Colorado in recent years, and they're still trying to go on offense. And a top goal, as Lynn mentioned, is to flip the third congressional district from red to blue and oust Boebert. And Democrats haven't held that seat since 2010. And they've launched a new project called 546. That's the number of votes they lost by. Um, Democrats haven't said how much money they'll be spending, but it's focused on Pueblo and other parts of the district in western Colorado. And I think in both districts, they're planning a lot of outreach to really hear from voters in those congressional seats. Benta, Lynn, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. CPR political reporters Benta Birkeland and Caitlin Kim with an update on two major congressional races here in Colorado. When we come back, Denver's new mayor shares his dream for the future. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Great classical music to keep you company through the night. It's night music on Colorado Public Radio. For a list of the music we're playing tonight, visit us online at CPR.org.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. For the first time in more than a decade, Denver has a new mayor. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I'm Mike Johnston. I, Mike Johnston. Do solemnly swear or affirm. Do solemnly swear. That I will support the Constitution and laws of the United States. I will support the Constitution and laws of the United States. And of the state of Colorado. And of the state of Colorado. And the charter and ordinances of the city and county of Denver. And the charter and ordinances of the city and county of Denver. And that I will faithfully perform. And that I will faithfully perform. The duties of the office of mayor. The duties of the office of mayor. Of the city and county of Denver. Of the city and county of Denver. To which I have been elected. To which I have been elected. And upon which I'm about to enter. And upon which I'm about to enter. Congratulations. <laughs> As you just heard, Mike Johnston was sworn in Monday. After the ceremony, he shared his vision for the future with a call to action. There are moments that mark chapters in our lives, like a climber halfway to the summit who stops at a lookout to see where we've come and where we still have to go, who we have been and who we still aspire to be. The last time a new mayor took this oath 12 years ago, we could never have imagined the path that waited ahead. Some of us over those years had to watch our mothers take their final breaths from the other side of a glass window, unable to hold their hands because the pandemic that was taking them might take all of us. Some of us had to see a cousin stumble slowly into addiction and then lose his home and his job and his family, and then we had to shudder to wonder where he's sleeping or what he's doing to survive. Some of us have waited, heart racing too fast to breathe for a text back from a son who was inside a school with an active shooter. Just please, God, text me that you're okay. We've given the last hug to a neighbor with her entire life packed into the trunk of her car as she drives out of Denver for the last time because no matter how many hours she worked, she couldn't afford to live in the neighborhood where she grew up. And even as we faced those struggles one day at a time, the very ground beneath us shifted. As we climbed, a country founded on the belief that good people can come together and solve hard problems saw our public discussion go from productive to combative, from optimistic to antagonistic, from hopeful to heartbroken. And those trials were tinder for the fires of division where every unsolved problem fueled the story that these problems were unsolvable or that we had to wait for someone else to solve them. Instead of turning to each other, we turned on each other. Instead of reaching out a hand, we pointed a finger. But today's question is not how we found ourselves here, but how we find our way out of here. Our dream of Denver is that when you land at your lowest, without a job or a place to stay, shackled by addiction or struggling with mental illness, we will not judge you or abandon you, we will not give up on you. We will get you a home, we will get you help, we will get you healed. Our dream of Denver is a city that belongs to all of us. So if you serve this city as a nurse or as a teacher or a waitress or a busboy or a bus driver, you can afford to live in this city and raise a family here every single day. Our dream of Denver is a city where you feel safe in every part of our city, so you can send your kids out to play in any neighborhood at any time of day and not once worry about their safety. 
Our dream of Denver is refusing to abandon our city center, but instead promising to reimagine it. As centers of commerce and culture, art and music, where all of us can live and work and play. To build industries that manifest the creativity of our diverse entrepreneurs. That showcase what makes us different and what makes us Denver. In spaces where all of us feel seen and safe and celebrated. Our dream of Denver is that we build things that support the people that built them. Houses that house those who built them. Hospitals that serve those who serve us. Roadways that carry home to their own home the hands that paved them. Our dream is a city that asks not only what we are building, but who we are building it for. How we're mindful always of building a city that serves those who have been left out of this city's successes for far too long. That is our dream of Denver. So today, today we dedicate ourselves to two essential American ideas. That every problem we face is solvable, and we are the ones to solve them. Those of us on this stage took an oath today. But for us to succeed, every Denverite must take their own oath. An oath to dream, to serve, and to deliver. To dream a Denver bold enough to include all of us. To serve our city above ourselves. And to march on shoulder to shoulder, undeterred by failure, until we deliver results. That is our oath. Democracy is the simplest belief to explain and the hardest one to practice. At its essence, democracy is an act of love. Our instinct as people is often to reserve love for those closest to us and reserve suspicion for everyone else. But the essence of democracy is that it calls on our ability to do something that feels unnatural, to love those who are different than us, to believe in them, to work with them, to sacrifice for them, to deliver for them. That is our dream of Denver. That is our promise to our people. That is our pledge to each other. That is how we put our arms around those stuck in a cycle of hurt, and it is how we pull this city back into a cycle of hope. It is how we dream, serve, and deliver Denver as America's best city. Now, let's get to work. Thank you so much for having me. That was Denver's new mayor, Mike Johnston. 13 members of city council, the auditor, and the clerk and recorder were also sworn in Monday. This is the first city council with six Latinas. It's also the first council with two out black LGBTQ council members. And for the first time in Denver's history, Women make up a supermajority on the city council, holding nine of the 13 seats. When we come back, cheering on Colorado's new All-American soccer superstar. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There are marathons, there are ultra marathons, and then there's the Hard Rock 100, a 100-mile-long race that makes runners deal with high altitude, life-threatening weather, river crossings, and sometimes dangerous wildlife. The run starts and ends in Silverton. 
on a course that goes through Telluride, Uray, and the ghost town of Sherman. You'll go over major mountain passes more than a dozen times. You'll also summit a 14er for an elevation change of more than 66,000 feet in all. The first rule of the Hard Rock 100, no whining. You have 48 hours to finish. The record, 23 and a half. And if you get to the end of the course, you must kiss a stone painted with a ram's head. And only then have you finished. There are four other ultra marathons in the mountains. Do at least three of them and the Hard Rock 100 and you'll complete the Rocky Mountain Slam, something only 60 people have accomplished. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. Sophia Smith, every defense's biggest terror. Oh, she's done it again. Sophia Smith, World Cup bound on a tear. The name Sophia Smith is about to be on the minds of sports fans around the country. The Coloradan will play in the World Cup starting Friday. It's an event that gets people who aren't usually into soccer looking for heroes. And Smith is poised for that role. Smith one-on-one, put it away! Smith! Patrick! What a finish. She's unbelievable. She really is. She's a player in unbelievable form. U.S. scores! Smith is just 22, and she's the reigning MVP of women's professional soccer in the U.S., She also spurred her team to the league title. Today, I'm visiting her parents in a much quieter setting at their home in Windsor, Colorado, as they prepare to board a plane to New Zealand where they'll watch Sophia take on the world with the U.S. women's national team. Hi. Come on in. Molly and Kenny's house is pretty spotless. There's no big Team USA banner or trophies on display. The only way you might know one of the top soccer players in the world used to live here is a small flag out front for Sophia's professional team. Otherwise, the memorabilia, and there's lots of it, is up the carpeted staircase. So this is Sophie's room. Wow. Yeah. So is it pretty much left the way she left it? Pretty much so, yes. I think a couple of the cool things that she has are her two championship rings, the NCAA championship ring from Stanford. Wow. Yes, that was pretty cool. And then the Portland Thorns championship ring. Wow, look at this box with lights and everything. It's pretty fancy. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Looking around Sophia's bedroom, I see a trophy and an autographed ball. In the closet, Dad Kenny shows me shirts from Sophia's time on her club team in Colorado, at Stanford University, and as a pro. On the desk, there's a stack of Sports Illustrated magazines with Sophia on the cover. She just sent us these home, too, when we were out there. She's like, can you please take them home? (laughs) So we just brought them home. Women's World Cup preview, Sports Illustrated. Yeah. That's awesome. And someone, I guess, sent us a picture just the other day that, that... Some of them, including Sophie, are on the next Sports Illustrated, too. So, Folded on the bed are some replica jerseys Nike had just sent them. The home jerseys you'll see the team wear is white with what looks like splattered paint in shades of blue. Well, splattered all over it. Very edgy. Yes, yes. And they gave us all all the stuff, all the little dolls and 
stuff that are of self. And it has like a cool ponytail. And it's got Smith 11. I love it. Yes. (laughs) None of this stuff means anything to her. She just sends it. You know, she she really doesn't care about having a doll, having her name on a hat, or, you know, having her picture on Sports Illustrated. I don't think. It's cool. It's cool, but at, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't mean a whole lot to her. Family is what means a lot to her. And And Winnie. And winning. Yeah, absolutely. She likes to win, and all the other fluff is just, to her, it's just fluff. That hasn't stopped her parents from hanging on to some of her mementos in case Sophia wants to have them in the future. Downstairs, Molly and Kenny and I settle around their kitchen table to talk about their journey to get here on the cusp of the World Cup. Molly, Kenny, thanks for having us here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Sophia grew up playing here. What's the moment when you each knew she was going to be a special soccer player? I would say it was about the age of six. She used to play on a little 3v3 soccer team, and uh, I just saw in her a determination and a will. And she had some athleticism that a lot of other kids didn't have. Even at that you know, stage in her life, she wanted to be the best player out on the field. You know, being an ex-athlete myself, I know that those types of qualities can help in producing one of those players that stand out. And I think it was probably similar time frame. The thing that stood out to me the most for Soph was she would come home and she would want to work on things if she felt she didn't get something right. And I thought, I, I think this is what it takes to be, you know, different than everybody else. Where would you say she got the ability to not be intimidated by anyone who's older than her? I would say she got that from her sisters. Yep. (laughs) Um, You know, she's got two older sisters, four and five years older than her. And so they were, you know, very competitive kids in sports as well. They've all played, you know, the soccer, the basketball and and things like that. And so um, I think just being around them when she would go to those games, she would actually watch quite a bit. And I think she would learn a lot of things from her sisters. And then just playing in the backyard, you know, they would compete at everything. Who could jump the highest on the trampoline to who could make the most baskets. But also in her situation, she always played up. Playing against older kids helped as well. So Molly, was she always mature for her age? Yes, (laughs) she's always been mature for her age. I think she's never thought of herself as the youngest sibling. She just wanted to fit right in with our older two and all their friends. Molly, I understand that you ran a daycare at home and that Sophia would sometimes be around the little kids here. Do you think that contributed to her maturing pretty quickly? I think that definitely could have helped. I did do a small home daycare for 20 years to be able to be home with my own kids. And she helped a lot. She loved the babies. She loved um, helping take care of them and playing with them. She's also an August birthday. So she's the youngest in like her class every year. So I think, you know, she's just always had to keep up with the older kids. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we're in northern Colorado near Fort Collins. When Sophia was young, you drive to Metro Denver so she could play on a club team there called Real Colorado. 
How often did you do that? And why did it seem worth it to make that drive so often? So up until the age of 11, she played up here in Northern Colorado, which was pretty easy. But I think at about that time, she was the one that came to us and said she thinks she wants something more. So we went down to Real, Colorado, and we visited, and she played with them for a weekend and said, this is what I want to do. And we decided we could probably do that. So I kind of was the one shoveling. So you were the soccer mom. So I was the (laughs) soccer mom. Mm -hmm. But obviously he would come on the weekends and stuff, but like the weekday stuff was pretty much me. But yeah, I remember thinking to myself, if we decide to go to Denver, she better not complain one time about the (laughs) drive. And she never complained one time. And there was times when we were stuck in traffic, it took us two and a half hours to get to practice. She never complained. She thanked us probably daily. Thank you so much for driving me to practice. Thank you so much for coming. She was so grateful for us that I probably would have done anything. (laughs) But there ever times where she seemed drained and like almost like she was tired trying to keep up with the schedule? I would say there was definitely some times, especially, well, she committed to Stanford when, what, her sophomore year Mm -hmm. in high school. And in my head, I'm like, you go, you know, if you want to do this, you go. But then I was thinking, how do you actually physically do that? You do all your homework in the car. You're never home. You're going to have to take all AP classes. So she had to switch out of, you know, just regular classes and take all AP classes. So it was like double the school commitment plus double the soccer commitment. And in my head, I'm like, I hope that's not too much. But she was determined no matter how much we helped her try to weigh, you know, can you do both of these things? And her determination made it me not worry about it Right, yeah, and I I think it's the determination and I think it comes back to her maturity level as well. Was there a point when you two debated whether you wanted to lean into her dreams of playing competitive soccer professionally versus encouraging her to have a more, quote, normal childhood? No, I don't think so. She always, sports were like, what she loved and what she lived for. So we were willing to do whatever to help her achieve that. And looking back, it was kind of crazy. But at the time, it was just, let's just do it. And also looking back, I don't think the driving sucked. It was terrible. (laughs) But the time that I got to spend with her in the car is probably one of the most special moments. I think for me as a mom, I got all that individual time with her, which I wouldn't have gotten otherwise, so. Kenny, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think her mentality has always been that she wants to be the best at whatever she's doing, whether that be basketball or whether that be a board game amongst the family. Or Um, making a coffee. You know, or or, (laughs) or anything, or making a coffee or anything like that. She just, you know, she has that mentality. Well, right after she turned professional she sent us the breville fancy coffee maker over there and she would send us pictures of what her 
like her newest coffee or fancy drink that she made in the morning and then she would try to help Kenny do it and yours wasn't usually quite up to like her <laughs> standards but and then I think she got one for each of her sisters too so they're always sending little pictures of that how cute their coffee turned out in the morning so she's always <laughs> raising the bar it's yes. like we can't just have regular no, coffee no you can't you even have just have coffee fancy designer be, coffee yeah, exactly yes yeah that's, that's hilarious and she's been a coffee crate she I think saved up 99 dollars once how old was she 11 yeah 11 and brought a keurig and also one of her younger team coaches up here didn't want them drinking coffee in the hotels when they would go on um road trips road trips and she got together with one of the moms who was like a long distance runner at usc and she's like coffee's actually uh, something good for you and they like presented it to the coach so she found one of her teammates moms and they went and presented it to the coach at like 11 years old that coffee wasn't bad so she got she got the okay to have coffee in the hotel you know when they have the free coffee in the hotels yeah at very early age so she's kind of a crazy coffee kid what advice do you have for other parents who are trying to figure out whether to encourage their kids to focus on one activity, like one sport or one musical instrument? I think um, kids ought to play any and everything they can, as much as they can, um, because we never know when they're gonna make the decision to do one or the other. So you feel ultimately the child will tend to gravitate to something ultimately. Yeah, times. absolutely. I think I think the the kid will gravitate to what they enjoy the most. Absolutely. We were never the types of parents to to push our kid to one sport or the other. We were just going to make sure we um, you know, They're supported busy. them and and we wanted to keep them busy as well. There's a picture online of Sophia when she was 7. She's smiling next to Abby Wambach, the great soccer player who played in four World Cups. Do you remember that day? I do remember that day. I think it was a women's national team game that we couldn't get tickets for, but the players did a clinic before the game. And I remember Sophie saying, I want a picture with Abby Wambach. And we stood in line forever <laughs> and got a picture with Abby Wambach. And she's had that picture ever since. Where is it? Where does she keep it? I actually don't know. It's on her phone now. It's on her phone, but I, I think the picture is, I think it's probably in one of our photo albums or something like that. Yeah. But um, I, I know she keeps it on her phone and... Uh, Somewhat of a source of inspiration. A lot of, <laughs> yes. A absolutely. Yep. She looked up to a lot of those players back then. Kenny, you played basketball in college and you started a girls basketball team for your older daughters. I understand Sophia also played basketball when she was younger. What did you think when Sophia picked soccer? Was that hard for you? Um, yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was hard for me, um, you know, because I thought all of the girls would end up playing basketball because that's what we spent most of our time doing. And um, But she decided that, you know, she was having, you know, a lot of fun playing soccer. And it got to the point where I think, 
her ninth grade year. She was playing varsity basketball over at Foster Ridge High School, and um, we would literally get done with a basketball game, and as soon as the basketball game was over, we'd, you know, when the janitors are cleaning up the bleachers and, um, you know, kicking everybody out, you know, at that time I was setting up cones in the gym and um, she would get after doing her, her training for soccer. Are there enough opportunities for girls to develop as athletes in their teenage years or do we still need to see more parity with boys sports? I definitely feel like there's not enough opportunities for girls. It's so much easier to find a boys club basketball team, a boys club baseball team, a boys everything. And the reason Kenny started coaching girls basketball because there wasn't anything. So he kind of just started up something on his own. And I I would say that I don't know that they that gap is that big. I think it's one of those things, you know, growing up in Las Vegas, we made our opportunities. Now, I think this generation, they don't do enough of that. What would that look like? Well, I think that would look like uh, getting your, your friends together and say we're meeting up, at, you know, out at the park to play some basketball. We're meeting at the soccer field. We're going to, you know, play some soccer or whatever it is. I think it's a generational thing. I, I don't think kids these days are into organizing games or anything like that. I think they're used to now, I think, um, having things organized for them in the form of club sports and things like that. She got called to join the U.S. women's team for the first time when she was just 16 years old. Were you nervous about her being in that environment at such a young age? I'll answer this one. I wasn't nervous about her being in that environment. I was more nervous about like the logistics because you would just drop her off at the airport and say bye. And she would get around the airport by herself, get on the flight by herself, Someone was always there to pick you up and they always had the uniform that you had to wear so you were identified. But I never worried about the environment because I know that's like her heaven, kind of. You know, being pushed, being high expectations, being around her idols that she's had for years. So the environment, I was just excited for her. The logistics part as a mom, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you have to take your shoes off at the TSA and then make sure you get all your bags. And then do you know what gate you're supposed to be at? Do you know what time you're supposed to board? Like that stuff was what I was more worried about. Would she have any fangirl moments when she did come across different idols? Yes, she did. So I remember she called us the first night at camp and she said, mom, guess who my roommate is <laughs> and I said who and she's like Becky Sauerbrunn. <laughs> Becky Sauerbrunn is one of the fiercest soccer players out there. We know what she does as a defender but right there providing <laughs> the offense. Sauerbrunn! Goal! So I think Becky is probably the perfect person they could have picked for a roommate for Sophie. So nurturing, thoughtful, smart. I think she helped Sophie so much that first camp. And then she would tell us who was at her dining table, dinner table. Mm -hmm. dinner table. And 
And then I remember a couple of times she's like, yeah, they were talking about, you know, where they're going to buy their house and who's getting married. And, and she's like, I'm just trying to figure out how to get all my homework done by tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, she definitely, pretty much everybody at camp were, was someone that she has looked up to and, and dreamed of being. Now Sophia plays for a professional team in Portland, Oregon called the Thorns. There is no professional women's soccer team in Colorado, but we just learned a group of investors is trying to start one. If that had existed when your girls were growing up, what would that have meant to you? I, do you want me to answer? (laughs) That would have been amazing because we would have probably been there for every game. We probably would have had season tickets. I think being able to see it, to be it, means so much to little girls and probably little boys as well. That would be amazing in Colorado now. Absolutely, and Colorado's always been a, it seems like it's been a soccer state. Um, And so to have a professional women's team in Colorado, I think it would be huge. Sophia carries herself with so much confidence on the field and in her public appearances off the field as well. Where does that come from and how did you help build that in her? You know, we just always encouraged her to be confident, to never let anybody, you know, ever ever take her confidence, ever shake her confidence. And um, I, I mean, that's a word, you know, confidence is a word that I try to instill in all the kids that I come across, every kid that I, you know, coach, every kid that I train. That word confidence is one that we use a lot with Sophie. You know, as a matter of fact, before every game, you know, when I text her, that word is in the text. I think she's kind of always been just confident in her abilities to do something. She'll always take on her older sisters on something because she believes, you know, she can beat them. And I also think failing and picking yourself back up and getting back to where you want to be and getting back on track has given her confidence as well. So I, you know, like one time when she wasn't invited to camp, I mean, it was a pretty sad day, but then she's like, what do I need to do? Like next day, it's like, what do I need to do to get back there? And then, you know, hitting the bottom and then building yourself back up, I think builds your confidence too. Cause you know, you know, no matter what happens, I still can come back if I want to. And I believe in myself enough that I know I can do it. Yeah, and I and I don't. She's a kid that's not afraid to fail. She understands that um, that's a part of the deal. She's been able to, you know, respond in the right ways after she's had some failures. So both her wins and her losses have contributed to the woman we see today. I think so, definitely. Mm-hmm. Kenny, before every game, you text her. What do you say to her and what do you hope to get across? The biggest thing um, that I want to get across is, again, to play with confidence. You know, sometimes it'll, my text will say, uh, you know, go out there and play with crazy confidence. But, you know, I also wanted to know that um, having fun is a big part of that. And then just go be soaps. Go be yourself, play the way that you know how to play. And uh, I, I try to make sure, you know, even at home games, when we're there, I'll see her all day before she goes to her game and, and I'll see her, you know, obviously walk out the door to the game and I'll, you know, shoot her a text, 
while she's, you know, getting ready or something like that, that I, when I know she's getting, you know, dressed or, or whatever, you know, just to let her know that, um, excuse me, just to let her know that I love her, I believe in her, and, you know, I just, I want the best for her. That's what it's about. Sorry. I just love to hear the emotion in your voice. It just really conveys how strongly you feel about her and how much you really want her to succeed. And we'll all be cheering. I see mom over there <laughs> tearing up. Right. Something that stands out when you watch her play is her nose for the goal. She is relentless, dribbling and scrapping through the defenders with a singular focus on the goal. It's like she doesn't even see the players from the other team sometimes. Or if she does see the opposing players, she's dribbling through their legs or right around them. It's incredible. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly it. She wants a, a to get to the goal um, and get the ball in the net. That's... Yeah, yeah. She, she <laughs> loves to score goals. Um, she wants to be ruthless. And the other part of her, her game is that she's creative. She's a fun player to watch because of the, you know, her creativity. We talked about Sophia meeting some of the U.S. national team players as a kid. Do you remember watching her take the field with some of those same players for the first time? Yeah, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> My first experience was what, you know, her first call up when she was 16. And, you know, we all knew that she wasn't going to play going into that camp. But it was pretty cool to uh, see some of the videos of her in practice with, you know, all of her idols. And the coolest thing was uh, going to the game and, and uh, all the players getting off the bus. You know, Rapino gets off the bus and, uh, you know, Alex Morgan gets off the bus. And, you know, and, and this goes for everybody, but, you know, the crowd, you know, the, the, the kids and the fans that are there waiting they're all going crazy and then uh sophie gets off the bus <laughs> and i'm thinking you know i think i, I almost you, remember that yeah. more than the first game well absolutely and, and sophie gets off the bus and i'm thinking okay they're probably not gonna cheer as loud or say as much but everybody you know it seemed like everybody knew her name they cheered for her you know just as much as they were cheering for some of the stars that had you know been there forever so that was one of the coolest moments for me. Yeah, yeah but surreal. then obviously still to this day, watching her out there playing with those players, I mean, I almost have to say, is this really happening? <laughs> now, this level of competition is intense, both physically and mentally. Do you see the mental toll up close and what can you do to help her through that? I think, you know, at times you do see a little bit of the mental toll and what's kind of changed over the years that I've noticed is we don't talk about soccer. She just wants to talk about anything but soccer, which I think that's her mentally trying to separate. You know, it's not only for her, it's for us all to figure out how to navigate that on a consistent basis. And um, she seems to be doing pretty good at that. Well, I found what you said interesting because most people work and they turn to sports to oh, yeah. decompress. <laughs> I can say in my house right. that is the case. So she does the opposite. Yes. 
So you're flying down to New Zealand and then hopefully on to Australia yes. as the team progresses through the tournament. How are you feeling on the cusp of making that trip? I'm super excited, but to be honest, a little bit nervous. <laughs> I'm both of those. I'm excited and nervous as well. I mean, I know we're not playing the game, but our kid is and our team is. Just hoping that they do well, especially, you know, being that there's great expectation on them. Right. Um, it's a big deal to win one, but they're, you know, on the cusp of winning, you know, three in a row. I just want them to do well because there is pretty high expectations. So it sounds like a part of both of you will also be on the field with her. Probably. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so let's imagine what it'll be like. Hopefully you've adjusted to the time change. You get ready to go into the stadium to see the national team take on Vietnam. You get to your seats. Bring us there. Are you snacking? Are you just nervously biting your nails? What do you expect will happen? Uh, definitely not snacking. <laughs> <laughs> your stomach? Yeah, we, well, we, we usually don't snack. Or actually, we don't even eat really during games. Is We're that pretty you're just focused. Too focused on it. Yeah. 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 We just kind of. He's kind of good at talking to people a little bit, but I feel but like, you're I like I can't. Leave me alone. I'm focused here. <laughs> You're like, I don't have time yeah. to talk. I have to focus yes. on every move on the field. Yes. Any final words you all want to say as you head off on this journey? Just how proud we are of Sophie and actually all our girls. We're pretty lucky parents. Absolutely. And we are, we're very, very blessed that uh, we've had not just three kids that have been successful in sports, but uh, amazing young ladies. That's what it's about. Molly, yeah. Kenny, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Molly and Kenny Smith, who spoke with me from their home in Windsor, Colorado. Their daughter, Sophia, who grew up there, is a standout on the U.S. soccer team, and she's playing in the World Cup starting on Friday. See photos from the proud parents at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team, who, in my view, are also on top of their game. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.